There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello. Welcome to another episode of Say Why to Drugs. I am Dr. Susie Gage. And thank you for joining me. Thanks for all the lovely comments about the last few episodes, particularly the vaping one seems to have gone down really well. But also the interview with Jenny Valentish about women and addiction is something I've had loads and loads of feedback about and people are really interested. And it's something that I hope to focus on a little bit more to talk to some other people. So some researchers who work in this field and some other people who've got lived experience as well and potentially make a series of it so keep your eyes peeled for that. The other thing I wanted to mention before I get started on this episode is that over Christmas I was a guest on another podcast called Overrated Everything which is hosted by Thomas Turgus and Andy Ellis from This Is England. Basically they invite a guest on to pick something that they think is overrated and maybe controversially maybe not controversially I picked alcohol and I think they were quite nervous about coming to talk to me about it because they obviously drink, so do I, I should say that. But we ended up having a really, really interesting conversation and I don't think we particularly disagreed about a lot. Saying something overrated doesn't mean that it's bad necessarily, but just I do think that as a society we have a very unusual attitude towards alcohol, which is something that I've talked about on here before. So if you're interested in that, I recommend going and checking out, even if you think I'm completely wrong by picking alcohol as something that's overrated I would encourage you to listen to it as well also it's a really good podcast so you should listen to some of their other episodes too and Andy and Tom are just really lovely people as well and I felt very lucky to get the chance to meet them and chat to them so that's a little plug for their podcast uh, in this episode I'm going to do something a bit different and I've put out the call on the last episode and on Twitter and Facebook to say if anyone's got any questions about drugs or kind of about everything to send them over and I will have a go at answering them. So this is kind of an, an ask me anything podcast. So I've had quite a few questions. I might have to split this into two episodes. We'll see how I get on going through them, but I'm not going to make it really, really long because obviously it's just me talking. So that could get quite uh, monotonous. So uh, we might have to do a couple of shorter episodes rather than one full long one. What else is going on in my life? I'm writing Say Why to Drugs the book at the moment, which I think I've mentioned before. I'm getting quite close to the deadline, so I'm getting more stressed, but it's fine. Um, it's going well, I think. I've been found out some interesting things. My 
favourite fact that I found out, maybe I shouldn't tell you because it's a spoiler for the book, but um, I'll tell you anyway, just this one, because it's really interesting. So I'm doing some research at the moment looking at cognitive enhancers. And while I was writing the chapter about amphetamines, I read a really interesting blog post about the history of amphetamine use. And the first recorded media stories about students using amphetamine to help them revise was published in the year... 1937. So we might think of cognitive enhancers as kind of a new thing that's sweeping over millennials and the generation after them. Uh, but actually, no, there's been this kind of worry about students using amphetamine to help them study since the 30s. But anyway, so I... We'll start the podcast proper now and drop the intro, but I'm going to say why to uh, anything that you've decided to ask me. Okay, so let's see how this goes. The first couple of questions that I've got are from Harry and James, and both of them are teachers or trainee teachers. Both have asked me my thoughts on whether these podcasts should be used in schools. So Harry said that he's a trainee teacher and he's wanted to share these with students, but he knows that it would be received with a backlash. And do I think that the information should be shared with teenagers or is it only for adults? Whereas James has said he was discouraged from honest dialogue with pupils and students go off to festivals and parties with no real idea on how to minimise personal risk. And being a science teacher, he got asked these questions a lot. Should teachers be encouraged to give safe use advice? I, I might have said this, but I might actually not have done on the podcast before. But the reason, the whole reason I set up the podcast was precisely to be aimed at teenagers. Now, I don't necessarily know whether I'm reaching that audience and I'd really love to hear from if there are teenagers who listen or if there are parents who listen who share the podcast with teenagers, I'd really love to know about it. And Or if you've got teenagers but you wouldn't want them to listen to the podcast, I'd be really interested in that as well if you think it's something for you to learn about to then you decide how to tell them. But the reason I initially set up the podcast after I won a competition called I'm a Scientist, Get Me Out of Here... The thing that I pitched to do with the winnings was to set up a podcast for teenagers providing information without hyperbole, without judgment and without bias. Now, I've tried to do that. Obviously, it's really difficult, particularly where the evidence is, where there's so little evidence. And we, this is something Linda and I talked about in the podcast last episode, is that when there's little evidence, it's really hard to navigate through and find an even line. So I've tried to do this with no bias and no misinformation and no no judgment and hyperbole, hopefully I've managed that. But yeah, when I initially set it up, it was aimed at teenagers. I don't know whether teenagers do listen, but I'd like to know. So I certainly would love it if it was used in schools. And I have heard from teachers who have used it in schools. And in fact, I've been invited to speak in schools based on the podcast and its contents. So I think it probably depends somewhat on the schools. I guess drug education is kind of taught in PSHE lessons, which is, um, oh, I can't remember what it stands for now, personal, social, health and uh, education. I mean, education, it's all schools education, right? But um, PSHE lessons, certainly, that's where it was taught when I was uh, at school in the 90s. But, well, we had one lesson about 
drugs. We had more about alcohol, but we had one lesson about illegal drugs. And that wasn't a health professional or anyone like that. It was a policeman who came in to tell us about drugs. Not that what he said wasn't interesting or useful in like, if it is useful to know about what are the legal ramifications of taking drugs? But I think it's more interesting and more important to know what are the health implications of taking drugs. And I'm not sure that certainly wasn't taught in school when I was at school, but that may well have changed. So that's a very rambly way of answering that question. But yes, I do think teenagers and teachers should be able to use these. I don't know. I know that it's naive of me to say, oh, well, everyone should get all of the evidence and make up their own mind because there are other factors at play. However, these podcasts were created to be a tool and a sort of evidence repository, and I hope that they're useful as such. So it saddens me a bit that people think that there would be a backlash to these at schools, but I can understand why there would be. That's, yeah... Does that answer that question? I'm not even sure. But I'll move on to the next one. So the next question was from Charlie and it was, what resources and facilities is the UK sorely lacking in treatment for addiction? And this is a really good question. It's a little bit outside my area of expertise, but I think everyone would agree that money is is lacking. I know that lots of drug services and stop smoking services uh, and um, alcohol help services have had their budgets cut over recent years. And I think in a time of austerity, things like these, which are seen as sort of lifestyle effects or frivolous things to spend your money on, are kind of the first things that go in when budgets are being looked at, which is sad, really, really sad. And, and I think sort of not very joined up. Um, but in terms of what sort of facilities in the UK are lacking. One of the things that in my area of expertise I've noticed is looking at the links between drug use and mental health. We see mental health problems and drug use problems co-occurring more than more than you'd expect by chance. And I think that services that link up drug use and mental health could be incredibly valuable here because people can quite often fall through the cracks. So people who are suffering with both poor mental health and drug use problems might be turned away from um, drug services told to sort out the underlying mental health problems first and then come back and sort out their their drug problems and vice versa. If, you've, if you're trying to get treatment for mental health, you might be told, well, we can't take you because we don't have the facilities to deal with your drug problems. And this isn't the fault of the services. Again, it's kind of budget things and resources things. But I think thinking about how these things can be treated together could be incredibly valuable, partly because they might also stem from the same sort of route as well. So there might be issues that are affecting both mental health and likelihood to use drugs. And you can see why these things might co-occur. So I think something that could help services to provide these kind of joined up drugs and mental health facilities could be incredibly valuable. Longer term, I think in order to improve this, we need more systematic change. And I don't think I'm saying anything particularly controversial here that drug use is stigmatised and it's sort of quite often thought of as uh, it's someone's choice, they've decided, they've they've started themselves down this path, even if then it's got out of control, they've taken the first step. And this kind of othering towards people who use drugs. So I think if that... If attitudes changed and it became more understood that this is something that could happen to anyone if their circumstances 
changed enough. People have might have different underlying risks, but this is it's not impossible for anyone to get to to get a dependence problem on a substance. And we sort of get rid of this kind of hypocrisy around how we look at drugs compared to something like alcohol. And that's not to say that alcohol use isn't stigmatized either because I think problematic alcohol use is still stigmatized. But I think if we can change attitudes towards drugs in this way, then it would be harder for people who control budgets to deprioritize these kind of things. And kind of related to what I was just saying, the next question is, do you think there's a need to make changes to legislation on alcohol based on evidence of alcohol addiction in the UK? Now, legislation is an area that I am less expert in, so I can't comment too much on that. But from what I was just saying, I can carry that on a bit. I do think that um, we have a very unusual attitude towards alcohol. It's so encouraged that it can be difficult to not drink. And actually, this is something that we talk about uh, on the Overrated Everything podcast that I mentioned in the intro. So if you want a more in-depth discussion, I'd recommend going over and checking that out. But there are some there are some policies that have had a lot of research done into them that the government are not keen to implement so things like minimum unit pricing of alcohol and I know this is quite a controversial topic but most of the alcohol that we buy is above that minimum pricing anyway so it would only be very strong very cheap alcohol that you'd really notice this minimum unit pricing however the evidence does seem to suggest that it's this alcohol that is most commonly linked to problematic alcohol use as you might expect because it's cheap and strong so if you're drinking lots then it's more affordable. I think the government are being a bit short-sighted by not considering this a bit more and we also know that there are a lot of um, lobbyists who speak to the government who might have vested interest in not wanting these kind of policies to be enacted. However, as I said, this isn't my area of expertise and this is just what I've gleaned from reading other people's work. So I'd be very interested to know if people really disagree with that or if people think that's a good idea. So please do get in touch. Um, the next couple of questions are a little bit less evidence, more personal. So um, Jack asked, what led you to being where you are today, professionally speaking? What got you interested in how drugs work? Why? What age? Etc. And someone without a name. Oh, Chris, if you're doing off topic, what inspired you to get into scientific research in the first place? And what are your top three tips for someone looking to go down the same career route? So I, this wasn't necessarily the master plan to be doing what I'm doing now. In fact, I very nearly moved to Switzerland and did a PhD about how colour affects emotion. I was... I was literally uh, signed on to the course, so it was it was it was very nearly going to be happening. But from from an earlier age, I was interested in how drugs work, and this kind of started when I was doing my undergrad. So I studied at UCL in London, um, and I studied psychology. But for part of the degree course, if in the first and second years, we were given one module to go and do anything else across the whole university. And in the first year, I went and did continental philosophy, which was very interesting but quite mind bending. Um, and then in the second year, I went to the pharmacology department and took a module called Drugs and the Mind. And this was the first sort of real uh, understanding I got about how drugs work. And it was the practical, really, that uh, that sold me on it. We split into groups and each group, um, one person had alcohol, one person had 
placebo alcohol, which was orange juice with a little vodka mist sprayed over the top of it so it still smelt of vodka. Um, the other, the alcohol person got vodka and orange. And then one person had nitrous oxide. Uh, so there's an episode on nitrous oxide if you want to go and listen to the what the effects of nitrous are. And one person had placebo nitrous oxide. And we were all tasked with doing um, various sort of cognitive tasks, balance tasks, um, memory tasks hand-eye coordination tasks before we took the substance and then afterwards or during, in the case of nitrous, because the effects stop almost immediately after you stop using it, people were sort of attached to these <laughs> these masks um, and these gas canisters that were providing them with either the air or the nitrous air. A little bit disappointingly, I was randomly assigned to the placebo alcohol group, so I had to do these tasks before and after an orange juice, but it just was really interesting thinking about the the effects of drugs, but also kind of presenting drugs as something interesting rather than something to be scared of. Not saying we should all go out and take drugs, but saying they have these interesting effects that can be studied. And that was when I first sort of realised, oh, there's, there's sort of research to be done here. But as I say, I sort of assumed... I, I was fine as a student. I was kind of average. I wouldn't. I wasn't the best in my class or anything like that. I did well in my undergrad, but I didn't do brilliantly. Well, I was on the cusp between a two-one and a first, so I I was very happy with that. But um, I didn't think that I was the cleverest person and that I could go and have a career in academia. But when I when I actually so I moved to Bristol after I finished my degree. At UCL and um, that's because I was in a band and the rest of my band lived there it wasn't because of anything to do with work and after about a year of temping um, for the NHS I got a job at Bristol Uni doing being a research assistant and I didn't really realise before that that these kind of jobs were possible and I just started doing doing research for someone else and uh, I worked on loads of different subjects I did some research into looking at how early exposure to language um, might impact your ability to to hear sounds that other people can't hear um, in terms of some languages have different phonemes than other languages so I had to find people who'd spoke or heard Hindi or Zulu when they were children but never since so that was that was a difficult study to recruit for. Um, I did some studies looking at how people read maps. I did some studies about um, other types of language and memory. And I wasn't necessarily thinking, oh, I can go and do um, anything that I want. I can go and do research into drugs. It was only later on that I got a job working in the tobacco and alcohol research group at Bristol with Professor Marcus Manafo. And that kind of really changed everything because first of all it was an incredibly interesting research group there were loads of amazing people working in that group people who I'm still really good friends with now and who uh, whose work I really really admire um Marcus is an, was an incredibly supportive boss and really encouraging and it was working well and also in all of these jobs that made me realize that um you don't have to be the smartest person to do to do well in academia and then I realized there was nothing stopping me doing a PhD and so I applied and it took me a few years to get funding and I think that's important to say that because I think people can get really disheartened and I know that I was really disheartened and I was thinking, well, I can't stay working as a research assistant forever and if I don't get a PhD soon, I'm going to retrain and I'm going to be a teacher. That was what that was my plan. And eventually, after three years of applying for funding, I managed to get funding. Yeah, it wasn't planned <laughs> or anything like that. So I feel I was just very lucky that I was in the right place at the right time. But partly that was because I'd been working as an RA for so long. It was about five years I worked as an RA before I um, 
before I managed to get this PhD and then start it. So I'm definitely not one of those people who went straight from uni to PhD through to everything. Like, So when I was about 23 or 24, I didn't actually think that I was going to go into academia at all. I wanted to be a rock star and I was in my band and I was having, having this temping job to kind of help tide me over so that I could do band stuff. So I kind of came late to it, really. And then it also then it took me a long time to, to secure funding to do a PhD, which is why I'm 35 and I only finished my PhD sort of three or four years ago, four or five years ago, can't even remember. <laughs> Time flies. But yeah, um, so I'm maybe not the best person to give top three tips for someone looking to go down the same career route. But I guess keep your eyes open for opportunities. Um, keep being curious and uh, don't give up. Actually, maybe don't give up is the most important one because I very nearly did give up and go and retrain and do something else when I'd been working as an RA for five years and had tried three times to get PhD funding and been unsuccessful I was definitely demotivated but it wasn't it wasn't that I wasn't good enough it was just that the time wasn't right I guess so yeah stick at it you don't have to be the smartest person to do well in academia Okay, the next question I've got is, is there too much red tape for researchers trying to do research on recreational drugs in the UK? What changes need to happen, if any, in this space to help better inform policy from the ever-changing research base? And kind of related question, given the current international interest in substances like MDMA and ketamine from a therapeutic standpoint, how much of a real terms impact will the new psychoactive substances ban have on current and future developments and treatments? And is this happening already? So these are really good questions and they're sort of about how does the how does the legal framework on drugs impact on our ability to do research. Now again, this isn't the type of research that I do, so it's slightly hard for me to comment on this. But I think the important thing to note is that there's loads of this research is happening now and I think attitudes towards it are changing. If we look at um, cannabis as a medication, all the media reports at the end of last year about, or middle to end of last year, about um, using cannabis as a medicine, I think have really shifted attitudes about drugs. And hopefully that will then sort of move over into making it easier to do this research. Because I think at the moment, as far as I understand it, and I'd be very happy for people who do this type of research to uh, correct me on this, but in order to give people illicit drugs in a scientific experiment, you need to have a home office license. And there are a few universities around the country that have this license, but not that many. And I think it's quite an arduous process to get it. But once you've got it, I think it's then relatively easy. I know that something that Professor David Nutt has talked about in the past is how it was a struggle to get funding to do this type of research maybe five or ten years ago. But if you look at how successful his group is now, they've been very inventive about where they've looked for money and they've worked with TV companies, they've worked with um, private organisations and they've been able to do loads and loads of really important and well-publicised research on this. And I think that is changing attitudes towards this kind of research and helping to sort of show that there is the potential substances that we think of as illegal recreational drugs may also have benefits. And we should know this because there are loads of drugs um, that are used illicitly but also are prescribable as medication. And this sort of falls nicely into the next question, which is what's the evidence around the use of substances like psilocybin, LSD, ketamine and MDMA for therapy? Now, 
I'm not going to go into that too much here, but there are I, there are quite a few episodes where we talk about this. So in particular, I'd really recommend the three episodes that I recorded at the SSA conference just over a year ago. Those episodes are surprisingly under listened to compared to some of the others. And they're my three, I think they're my three favourite episodes of the entire podcast. So I interviewed three researchers who look at psychedelic medicine. So I interviewed um, Ben Sessa, who's based just near Bristol, and he's doing research at the moment into MDMA, I think, and useful in a therapeutic context. But we talk about all sorts of things around how he got into researching psychedelic medicine, um, what his views are about it, and what his research interests are, and what some of his favourite findings are. Um, I also interviewed Dr. Albert Garcia Romeo, who's based in um, Johns Hopkins in America, and he's done loads and loads of work work in psilocybin so um, that's the active ingredient in magic mushrooms and we talk about how he conducts his research sort of what therapeutic research using psychedelics looks like how are the psychedelics administered what kind of a setting are people in all of these things that um, I just found the conversation with him absolutely fascinating and then I also spoke to Professor Celia Morgan who's from the University of Exeter and she's currently um undertaking a large trial looking at the use of ketamine for the treatment of alcohol dependence. And this is something that I find completely fascinating is you think, oh, well, this is an illicit substance. How on earth can it then be used to treat dependence on another illicit substance? Isn't that massively risky? But actually... This is based on evidence um, from the 60s, I think, where these some studies were done which weren't necessarily done to the kind of standards that we would do studies today, but found these really interesting findings that are now being really interrogated with sort of up-to-date techniques and pre-registration of trials and, you know, all of this kind of thing that we do now to make sure that when we conduct research, we're doing it to the best of our abilities. So I, rather than me going rattling off all of the current state of affairs for these substances at the moment, I'd recommend that as a first port of call, you go and listen to those three episodes because they are really fascinating. I think I'm just going to do one more now and then I'm going to break and I will record another one of these with the rest of the questions for the next episode. Uh, so the last question, this was one that was sent over um, via email and it's about, oh no, I'm going to try and pronounce things. Amantia muscaria. So also known as fly agaric, this is a type of mushroom. And in fact, if you picture in your head a toadstool, you're probably picturing fly agaric. So it's the white stalk, red sort of, as you can tell, I'm not a mycologist, red uh, top, <laughs> bulb, I don't know what you call it. So um, my friend Olivia Maynard, who is a amazing scientist and a former office mate of mine, good friend, wonderful human, uh, she's very recently got into mycology. So when I received this question, I immediately emailed her and she's probably listening to this absolutely laughing her head off at me trying to describe a mushroom. But yeah, it's the mushroom with the white stalk and the red top with the white spots on it. So if you picture a mushroom, that's what you picture. It's the mu mushroom in Super Mario. It's the... Some people think it's the mushroom in Alice in Wonderland. All of these, uh, it's it's your sort of classic mushroom. But the question is, is there any research on this as a drug in the UK? As I believe it's used in some rituals around the world. And this person's also interested in mushroom foraging and um, points out that many sources label it as a poisonous mushroom. Although whether this is actually the case or not. Well, 
No, this is definitely the case. It's a poisonous mushroom, uh, but you'd have to eat quite a bit of it to experience poison from it. I think um, estimates are around 15 caps of it. That's what you call the top, cap. There we go. Sorry, Olivia. <laughs> she did tell me. So um, Olivia sent me a really long description of these because as I, as I said, she's got into mycology recently and going foraying for mushrooms. This is an interesting mushroom because it's a different psychedelic to psilocybin, which is what you think about when you think about magic mushrooms. Um, so it's something called muscimol and ibotenic acid. So these are the chemicals that are thought to be give to give the psychedelic experience from these drugs. Um, and they also seem to operate in a different way to psilocybin, the active ingredient in what we call magic mushrooms, which is actually potentially hundreds of types of mushrooms contain psilocybin, not the one or two species that most people know about. Now, Liv's done more research on this than I have, but she said she's struggled to find any academic texts on the effects as compared with other mushrooms. However, from speaking to other mycologists or people who are interested in consuming these mushrooms, uh, people report that it's not as pleasant and there can be more unwanted side effects. In order to answer the question, which is basically about is there much research? The answer is no, I don't think there is much research. And I think in terms of using it as a psychedelic, the feeling in the community of people who take psychedelics is that there are other mushrooms available which have less unpleasant side effects than this. But it's, um, it's something that's got a lot of folklore around it as well, like most psychedelics do, even potentially that because it was... Uh, common in Siberia, it might be uh, related to people first seeing Santa Claus or Vikings eating them before going into war to give them strength. Um, reindeers might eat them. Uh, there's all sorts of, uh, yeah. And again, it being used in Super Mario and it being potentially the mushroom from Alice in Wonderland, all these things, it's, it's quite a sort of folkloric mushroom. But in terms of whether there's actually real good quality research around it, I think that's much less well known. Okay, thank you so much to everyone who sent in questions and to the people whose questions I haven't got to yet. Um, I'm sorry, and I really enjoyed doing that. So if you guys liked it too, then the next episode will be the rest of the questions that I've got. If you really hated it, please do let me know because I can do something else instead. But I found it really interesting to answer those questions. I thought they were really good questions. And mainly I was then plugging other episodes of the podcast. But um, I hope that was OK. I'm hoping, as I say, to put out another episode in two weeks time. But I am going to be travelling a bit because uh, I'm going to a conference. So it might be a day or two late. But hopefully not, because I'll try and get my act together and record it before I go. But I just want to say thank you all for listening. And thanks for the support. Thanks for everyone who sends me lovely messages. I really appreciate it. And I'm really glad that you guys get value out of these podcasts. And I'll see you next time. Bye. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.